Welcome to Tonebenders, a sound designer's podcast. Here are your hosts, Dustin, Timothy, and Renee. Welcome to Tonebenders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, are Timothy Muirhead and Dustin Camilleri. Hi, guys. Hey. Hi. And also with us today is Daniel Ryan. Daniel's a short film and music video director. He is a curator of ForNoOne.tv and DanielRyanVideo.com. He also collaborates with Dustin quite a bit. You can find us on Twitter. I am at Renee underscore Coronado. Tim is at Azimuth Audio. Dustin is at Pulse Train. And Daniel is at Daniel Ryan Video. Let's do some comments. Okay, we got a couple comments based on uh, episode 007, which was the guns, uh, firearms roundtable. Kyle Robb says, fantastic episode, gentlemen. I was totally drawn into every word, the gear setups and the whys, addressing the environment and the acoustics of a shoot, and the post-production method questions, and answering all the inquiries that were coming to my mind in real time as I listened. It was awesome. I've never done a gun recording session myself, so this was really eye-opening and brought to mind lots of considerations and reasonings that are needed to do this type of shoot. The pics and dialogue were totally helpful as well. So thanks a lot, Kyle. I just thought we'd mention uh, that we've been starting to add pictures uh, on the website, tonebenders.net. So for that episode, there was a bunch of stuff from Watson Wu. And also for the, the last episode on MS Recording, uh, there was a bunch of cool pictures that Renee shot of uh, his mic setups for that test that we did. And uh, also in regards to episode 007, the Firearms Roundtable, two separate people have sent us links to uh, their recording sessions for guns and let us take a listen to what they did. And you can take a listen too if you go to our Facebook page. So the Futz Butler sent us his uh, guns. He did a ton of guns recording. And uh, there's a cool uh, rundown of the final mix that he made out of it, as well as all the individual elements individually. And then also Steven Saldana. He says, thank you very much for the insightful podcast about recording guns. I had a terribly awkward experience recording a 9mm last year, and I only had an NTG2 to use and no idea what I was doing. I learned so much from this episode. If you care to hear the recordings of the original sound and how I processed it, this is not great, but I tried. So thanks for that, Stephen. Uh, again, if you go to our Facebook page, we'll post uh, these two recording sessions up there for you guys to take a listen to yourself. And then finally, in regards to our last episode, 008, Chris Ryan 1 wrote in, Great episode. The Shure VP88 isn't a bad MS mic. We've used it for a while, and it's proved great. A little search and you'll find someone complained that it was noisy way back in a forum and then others have decided it's a noisy mic without ever having actually used it. It's not noisy and it's not a bad deal for 600 bucks. So I guess we forgot to mention that one in the last recording. Yeah, and you know, I have a VP88 here at the office and you know, that was the first MS mic I ever had experience with and I agree it's not you know, people do say it's noisy but it's not. Um, I'll play a couple of recordings that I made with it at a rodeo here. Um, which I just love. Some of my favorite stuff ever. They're literally riding horses right out of the gate, and I'm right on top of them, and no one else is in there. And I thought the VP88 just handled it all beautifully. Let me play one more for you. It's a really nice mic, similar characteristic to an SM81, and Michael Rayfield's going to hate me for endorsing it because he hates it, but I like it. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> He's not here now. We don't have to be scared of him anymore. Maybe that's why I didn't mention it. Maybe I should, <laughs> just to cause a fight. 
Okay, so that's the comments for this week. So what we're hoping to do today is is to talk in a broader sense about the big picture. And what we want to do is talk about collaboration and talking about working with people that are not in the audio field. And that's why we've brought Daniel on. Daniel works with Dustin a lot. Dustin, tell me a little bit about the relationship that, that the two of you guys have. I met Daniel probably about two years ago or so, and we were looking to hire someone with his skill set. And in our initial conversations, uh, we actually started talking about sound right away. And I, I have a, a love of the visual arts, of course, which is why I love post-production audio. And Daniel has a, a, a huge passion for sound. So we kind of connected in that way and we've maintained that relationship and he shoots in a very interesting way and his aesthetic tends to lend itself well to sound design and Daniel's definitely one of those types of people who you know even though it's not his profession necessarily he absolutely adores sound design and I think those discussions those initial discussions have matured over the past two years and we collaborate on almost everything that he does in some respect and it's been good it's been an interesting working relationship it's fun to work with someone who's not necessarily a sound person but that loves sound and is passionate about it and we've established trust between each other which is quite rare and he lets me do what I do and of course we collaborate and he will provide notes and we'll do revisions, but for the most part, he lets me kind of run with it. So it's been good. I've, I've really enjoyed working with him and hopefully we work together for years to come. So Daniel, if you'll tell us a little bit about your background, the main website that you have up is for no one.tv and, and a lot of what you got going on up there are music videos. Tell us a little bit about your history and that, and about what your role is and about what it is that you do with regards to those videos and with regards to that website. The For No One website is a project that I have that I've been working on for a couple of years now, I think, where I'll shoot bands playing in big empty spaces that I like and um, put together something that's kind of a cross between a music video, short film, or just kind of a document in time of where they were in performance and at one state in their career. And in addition to that, I have a personal website where I post all my other projects, whether it be commercial work, short films, um, other music video content. The For No One stuff is more of a series of very specific projects that all have like an overarching theme together. But in addition to that, on my personal site, I have other music videos I've done for artists, um, documentary work, and several other various video projects I've been working on um, over the course of the last couple of years. When you're working on those projects and you're thinking about maybe not necessarily the music video ones, but the other ones that are that are outside of that, the short films, and you're thinking about bringing someone like Dustin in, what types of things are you looking to get by collaborating with a with a sound designer? What kind of things are you hoping to have added to your project in those when you're bringing someone in? It's all on a project to project basis. Some projects call for a heavy sound component. Others, like you said, a straight up music video oftentimes doesn't. However, there was a music video I had um, that I asked Dustin to collaborate on with me where we had a straight up audio track, a traditional music video, but there was a lot going on that was very organic 
in um, a very specific like wooded environment and I thought that bringing sound in on something like that could be very interesting because it's a traditional music video but also to take an additional sound component and layer it on top of that um, the artist that we worked with is a friend of mine who goes by only son and he was very open to collaboration with both of us in that sense that I vouch for Dustin as being a very talented sound designer who I thought could bring a more cinematic level to this video. So it's more like a short film rather than just a traditional music video. So depending on the project, it really varies. Short films, obviously, I think sound design is half of it for me. Like the picture and the story and the performances are all the stuff that I'm worried about in production at the time. And then once we're done, I'm just as excited to start the sonic environment that we create. There was a recent short film I did with Dustin where we gave him all the Foley audio, but I was more excited for him to take it all away and recreate all the sounds from scratch. So Project to project, it varies, but it's always cool for me to get to the point when the sound element is introduced because that's like part two of the project for me, and I'm just as excited as that as the actual creation of the visuals. When you're looking at a project from the very beginning, uh, at what point do you really start considering sound? At what point do you start bringing your sound guys in? At what point do you start budgeting for sound? Again, it's kind of project to project. I always think of it at the very beginning, and I try and at least throw ideas off of the few sound designers and audio engineers I work with. Ideally, it's budgeted with right off the bat, but depending on the project, sometimes it doesn't allow the budgets that we would hope that we always have. So depending on the project, um, ideally it's in pre-production that sounds brought up. Sometimes it's the type of thing where we don't actually start tackling that till everything's in the can and then it's just like phase two of the project. Yeah, but ideally you'd, you'd prefer to have sound people be part of the production process, right? And to talk about that up front. Yeah, always that's ideal. But um, just depending on time and money, that can't always be the case. If someone who's super talented and I know is donating time on a restricted budget, I also want to respect their time. If you do have the luxury of bringing a sound person on up front, how much of their input dictates the what you do as a director? You know, will you change a shot if a sound designer says, hey, if you shot it by this angle, I may be able to do this treatment. Is that type of discussion something that you'd appreciate as a director or is that too much? Yeah, I think sometimes it could be, it could go a little bit of both ways. Typically when I have a project that I'm shooting, I'll have it boarded out 90% of the time physically shot by shot, drawn out so everybody's on the same page when we go into shooting. Sometimes there's stuff that's a little more lenient and we have a bit more of a... Um, open mind when we're shooting and I'll always take input from everyone on set at all times like I'm, I'm way into collaborating and hearing what everyone has to say so I'm always open to that and the shots always start in one place but if someone did have a great idea that was inspiring to us at the time I typically shoot both ways then I would shoot the original way and the new way and then we'll figure it out later. So when you're working on a short film and and you're collaborating how do you approach discussing the creative aspects of it with your sound designer? How do you approach the communication aspect of what you want versus what your sound designer can bring to you that you maybe haven't thought of yet? 
Um, well, it always starts with references. Um, whether I'm working with Dustin or I have another friend who goes by Detachi. His name is Joseph Freoli. He um, has a site, Jaff Box, and we work together as well. And with both Dustin and Joseph, I tend to just throw out references of things I like. And usually I tend to work with the same people frequently enough that we can have friendly conversations from time to time just about like, hey, did you see this movie? What did you think of the sound design? What did you think of the score? All different aspects of production, but uh, when I'm speaking to sound designers specifically, it's a running dialogue at all times. It's not necessarily like we're starting this project. It's usually something that's a continuation of an influence or a reference that we've had at some other point down the road. So when it comes to a short film specifically, I think that it'll start with um, a few different cinematic references, typically features. Um, sometimes it could be a broadcast spot or another short film or a music video, just any content that we feel strikes a similar chord to what we're looking to achieve sonically. It's something that will start with references. And then I always, like Dustin was saying, love to let the sound designers just do their thing because I tend to work with people I know and trust and they always impress me and do better than I asked for when giving them references. And Dustin, is that how you like to work? Do you like to get references in on the front end? I, I do. It's incredibly helpful, I think, when you're starting a project to just kind of get a sense of what is going on in, in the head of the person that you're trying to collaborate with. And, you know, those references may end up not being relevant to the final product, but at least it gives you a place to start and a place to start the conversation. And like Daniel said, most of the time that we've worked together, it, it has been that running dialogue. And those conversations have started maybe months before the project ever kicked off. And it usually is as casual as, hey, did you see the latest whatever? you know, there was this scene and I really loved what they did there. And then months down the road when we do a project, we'll go back and reference that and say, you know, maybe it could be something like that. I, again, I think that's really helpful because it gives the two people collaborating a, a kind of a vocabulary, a shared vocabulary. And that's really hard when you're talking about sound because sound isn't something really tangible in a way. I love references and everyone I work with, whether it's Daniel or, or someone you know, someone like Daniel that I've known for a long time or someone completely new, um, I always say, send me references if you can and, and send me as many as you can. And even if they're, as I said, not necessarily relevant to the project at hand, if it's just something that you like, it helps me get a sense of the kind of tones and the style that maybe you know, you tend to gravitate towards as a client, which is which is really helpful. And one, one other thing I wanted to add, um, with both Dustin and my friend Joseph, I was mentioning earlier, I know for a fact with both of them, the first thing that I said to both of them was, have you seen the movie Eraserhead? Do you like the sound design? And they both just kind of, their eyes lit up and it's like, cool, we'll work together for a long time. <laughs> uh, Tim, what about you? Do you like getting references in on the front end when you're working with somebody new? Uh, I find that uh, references are both amazingly helpful, but they can also be very misleading. The relationship between Daniel and Dustin seems to be really great, and Daniel seems to be uh, kind of a hands-on, knowledgeable person with sound. But I've been working on projects where uh, someone will come in and say they want this certain sound, they want it. And then the whole time I'm looking at what the actual picture is and thinking, that's not really going to work. And then you have the problem of, do you give them what they want or do you give them what you think is going to work? And it becomes a, a tug of war on what you're going to give them. And then you, 
inevitably there's a medium ground that you got to find, but I love references except for when they cause problems, which is a weird way to put it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, you have to figure out how uh, plugged in the person giving you the references is to the project. Recently, I started working on a project where the producer gave me one set of references and the director gave me couldn't be more different set of references. And I had to navigate that ground to find out because they're both important people to the project and you don't want either of them feeling like their opinions were uh, thrown out the door, but they were totally different. So I, I find that you can't just give one set of references and that be the, the end. It, as they were saying, it's got to be a give and take. So you get the first set of references, you give them a little test on that and then they go, oh no, you got to pull this back here and add to this. And eventually you get to the right spot, but sometimes it can be a bit misleading, but and all, it's better than someone saying, make it blue. Half the time when people are trying to verbally describe what they want something to sound like, it can be a, a massive disaster. Yeah, that's always the big challenge is the language, you know? It's hard for everyone to be on the same page with regards to language. It can be so subjective. Yeah, it's very abstract. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's why I was saying it's nice that it gives you some kind of shared vocabulary, whether or not it's, you know something that is relevant to the final project, at least it's a conversation starter and you can start to talk about things in words that make sense, you know, which is half the battle sometimes, you know, like Tim said, especially if you're getting direction that's kind of counterintuitive or goes against one another, at least if you have some kind of shared vocabulary, you can talk through those things intelligently rather than just throwing around abstractions like make it blue. It helps you drill down to what everybody wants and find that common ground. But without the reference point, you just have no starting point. Here's, here's what I'd say. I think you do have a starting point. I've also had rough experiences with references. And the best director experience I ever had was when we totally eschewed all that. And, and the other problem that I personally have with references in general is it sets your ceiling, right? It doesn't set it, but it implies a ceiling as far as what it is that you're going to do. And the best collaboration I ever had with a director is a guy named um, Alonso. We did a short film called El Descubrimiento, and we're, we did another one called Crescendo, and they were both really great short films. And the conversations that I had with Alonso were less about references of things that he liked, and it was more about references of emotions he was looking for. The audio aspect is, it is the emotional element of the piece. And so what I told him was, and I literally told him this, I said, direct me like an actor. Tell me the exact emotion you're looking for in this spot, in this spot, in this spot. And don't give me like a line reading. Don't give me prescriptions, but give me direction like an actor. And it'll be my job as a professional to execute you feeling those emotions in those spots. And I find that the language that, that directors have with actors translates very directly to, to the language that they can use with their audio guys, because you're still looking for emotions. You can say, hey, I want this to be, I want to I want to really feel like fear here, and I want this to be like a tender moment here, and I want, you know, I want the pace to feel like this here. And if you use the same uh, vocabulary that you use with your actors, with your sound guys as directors, it equates to not giving your actors line readings, right? The reason you don't give a, an actor a line reading is so, is so that you can allow your actor to bring to the table what the actor has inherently that you haven't thought of yet. And I think as a as directors and and Daniel, you can totally like just totally crush my dreams here <laughs> anytime you want to. But the best interactions I've ever had with directors is where they do give me very specific direction with regards to emotion, but leave it totally open to me with regards to execution. 
Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I feel strongly in the sense that once you're actually in post-production, that's something that takes over a lot is just kind of the the emotion and the feeling and the vibe that you're going for with everything. But like Dustin was saying, up front, just to get the vocabulary and make sure you're on the same page and me not being a sound person, when I say a word, you know what I'm what I'm trying to get at, even if it's not the correct vocabulary that you guys would use. I could be like, oh, but you know, in Django Unchained, when the lion made the, when there was a lion noise when they were fighting, but there was no lion there. That's a frame of reference that if I tried to say that technically, it might come out wrong and it would be more confusing than anything else. But just to get the ball rolling with um, vocabulary and tone, I think that's where references are helpful. And like I said, with the sound designers I work with, we are friends as well. So it's just kind of an ongoing dialogue we always have anyway. So I think it's a great building block to start from. And then once we're in a very specific project in post-production, that's where things like you're saying, I think everything goes hand in hand and it all comes down to the emotion and the vibe and the tone that you're trying to achieve once you're there. But just to get discussions rolling early on, a lot of times I think that's when references are helpful for me. And also, more than anything else, like Dustin was saying, I'm just way into sound and nerdy about it. So I just like talking about that stuff. So it might not be a reference for this film per se, but it's just nice to always have an ongoing dialogue about sound stuff and having people to have an outlet for that for me. Yeah. You know, I think it's beautiful when directors are into sound, you know, because it's it's... You, you, you say you're into sound, but really you're into the emotion of it, you know? I mean, that's what you're getting out of the sound is, is emotion. And, and the directors that really get that, you know, in my opinion, they make better work. I've actually had some good experiences with directors that started the process completely hands-off, just kind of passed the picture to me, said, do what you think is right, and then we'll look at it, and then I can direct you from there. And then you can let the picture talk to you and figure out what you feel like the emotions are and feel like what it calls for. And, you know, as you've gained experience over your career, you've figured out these things and then you can show them what you've done and they can say, no, you got to amp up this here, pull back a little bit here. But there is inherently... Have you ever heard pull back ever? I I have actually. Sometimes I go a little too hard on things. (laughs) (laughs) But you're right. It is almost always go harder. Yeah, up is loud. Just keep making it loud. But yeah, I find that that can be a good way to uh, tackle things as well, just because then you're not talking about abstract things. You're talking about, at that moment, you did this, now let's try and do this. Most directors don't prefer to work that way, understandably, but uh, I found that it can work well. We've worked that way before. Um, On that music video I was mentioning, I just told him, like, there's so much cool stuff going on here. I think sound should be the third character. We had two lead actors, and I wanted sound to be the third, basically. And for that specific project, I remember I just gave it to you. And I gave him the QuickTime file. 24 hours later, he gave me a version. And then, like you were saying, Tim, that just kind of started the direction process where it's like I knew where he was coming from. I had a few tweaks along the way and like that was it it was pretty right on and a great way to work as well yeah i think that 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 type of working relationship necessitates a very deep level of trust between both ways really between director and sound designer and from sound designer back to director and it's helpful that i know daniel pretty well at this point and he knows me pretty well at this point so we can work together pretty easily. I mean, I think Daniel could give me just about anything and I'd give him back something that maybe not is right on, but it's probably pretty close simply because 
A, he trusts me to do that, and B, I know what he is looking for. I know that because we've had these discussions over the past couple of years about sound, and it's always between us an ongoing dialogue, which is helpful. But it's hard to establish that. It's when you're working with a new client, it's really tough to get there right away. And I find, for me, that's where the references help. You know, if a client says, I love this movie and I like this treatment and you respond with, oh, I saw that. I loved it, too. I think that's that that gets them to be like, oh, OK, I can trust this person because we have some kind of common ground, if nothing else. Yeah, you know? it's building a rapport as much as anything. Totally. That's kind of what collaboration is, you know, or good collaboration. For is. me, it's not to say that you can't use references at all. I'm not I'm not religious about it or anything. I do like the idea of keeping it slightly at an arm's length, like what you just said, where, hey, we can talk about things in our memories and talk about things where we have similar taste. But if you start bringing scenes into me, it starts really getting to a situation where it's going to be tough for me to do anything outside of what you just showed me. Totally. Yeah. You don't want to get into a situation where you're just a button pusher. I think that's why the types of conversations and the way that we frame them between Daniel and myself it never is that. It's just simply what we think is neat and what we think is cool. And he allows me to run with my creative vision for the piece. And then, you know, we iterate on top of that. But yeah, I don't, as you said before, you don't want to be too prescriptive about something. And that happens a lot, unfortunately. And that's always somewhat frustrating because, I don't know, you don't get to really put your own creative stamp on something when you're just you know, if you're given a scene and says, make it sound exactly like this, well, anybody with any talent could make it sound just like that, you know? Yep. With regards to what Tim was saying earlier, with regards to being given a blank sheet and doing your best and then having that get critiqued from your perspective, Daniel, when you're taking direction and when you're giving direction, what's the best way to approach direction when you see the first pass at something and it's not exactly what you're looking for? How do you go about communicating that? with your sound person. And as sound people, how do you want to be communicated to? Well, typically, if I get a first pass, the, the main thing overall is just the tone to make sure we're on the same page. And like Dustin was saying, we have worked together enough that I'm very confident in his abilities to achieve that. And then from there, I'd say it gets broken down on a scene by scene, sometimes shot by shot basis, just nitpicking and getting into finer details beyond that. And in regards to communication as a whole, I think that it's good just to kind of have the dialogue going throughout the whole process. It's nice when I get to see kind of works in progress along the way, just to make sure he doesn't overextend pushing one thing or trying to find something just right if it's not contributing to the overall tone that we're trying to get. I'll say this too, Daniel gives the best notes ever. Very thorough and very... Why, why are they so good? He never misses anything. and. Daniel always knows exactly what he wants. It's not in a prescriptive way. He's not trying to say like, you have to make it sound like this, but he has a very clear vision for something. And when I send him a version and he's generating notes, he can take that version and say, okay, I see the path that you're going down. This is how I want to steer it. And the notes he gives back are very, very helpful in the sense that they're not prescriptive, but they do tell you exactly what he's looking for. So he'll say in this exact section, and he knows how to write too. It's, it's like, here's the time code, here's the in and out, here's what I like and what I don't like. And that's great for me as, a, as, as someone who's trying to make my client happy. And yes, Daniel and I are friends, so it's a little more casual sometimes, but 
you know, I, in the end, I just want him to be happy because that's what I'm here for. And it's like, if you're not telling me how to make you happy, then that's really difficult to get to when you start getting into the revision process. So yeah, he gives, he gives very thorough notes. It's always easy for me to do revisions with him. Yeah, I, I tend to give too much information usually, which Dustin has told me is preferable sometimes. Just like I'll, I'll watch something 30 times before I give you notes. I won't watch it twice. Like I'll make sure every single thing is very clear and 100%. I just don't like working on projects where it gets to a point that if I'm working for someone else and they'll see something five or six times and then comment on something that's been in there since the first draft. I know sometimes other things affect the way something will sound or look or something like that, but if it's something that's been a part of the project since day one, I don't like being on the end of that that you guys would be on where you get a note that would have influenced the way you did everything around it. So I tend to overanalyze things to an extent that I'll feel very strongly and very confident in the first round of notes I give. Notes don't trickle in for me. It's usually, like Dustin was saying, very thorough once, and then I can give you your space to work for as long as you need before we reconvene and take it from there. Yeah, that does sound awesome. I wish everyone gave me notes like that. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's incredibly helpful. And I think that that's why our working relationship has been so positive because it, he lets me work, but he's also has a clear vision and is very thorough about that vision. And I think what's really unique is that, as he just said, he puts himself in our shoes and he says, like, what's going to be helpful for these people and how can I make their jobs a little bit easier? And that almost never happens. So kudos to you. Like sir. I said from up front, like I think sound is half of the finished product. So everyone's equal on this project until it's done, you know? And then when it is done, the project is all that matters. Like the finished piece of work is the most important thing on anything that I ever want to work on. So it's the same with um, motion designers, editorial notes, ev everything along the way is equal in my eyes. And I just happen to be very passionate about pretty much every aspect of it. Like I can nerd out about graphics just as much as I can about sound. And like we were saying with references, even though I might not be able to speak the language to the extent that someone that that's their independent field, I like to at least be in the know of what's what's going on out there in commercials and films and music videos every step of the way so that when it does come time to notes and working with people that I like and trust that it could just be the type of thing like Tim was saying just to like give someone a project and let them run with it and then you start kind of playing ping pong with it after that. So how do you deal with creative conflicts? Um, so let's say hypothetically you gave Dustin a note and that note is not good. And Dustin knows that. How do you guys how do you guys approach those type of creative conflicts? I think a lot of times it would be um, D Dustin's very good at delivering exactly as notes advise. But then in addition to that, if he does feel that something isn't quite working, he'll give me exactly what I gave him. And in addition to that, he'll give me something else. Says, "Here's here's what you were asking for. Here's something else I threw together. What do you think?" And more often than not, the one that he kind of threw together on his own because that's his job, and that's why I trust him with that tends to lead things in sometimes a slightly different and oftentimes better direction overall. It's just I always prefer working with someone who will kind of go along with the flow um, and just trust that the overall vision, I have faith that all of these small notes will contribute to that. If it's not and it seems to be going off that path, I, I love to hear and see different versions of that along the way as well. 
Yeah, I think it's important to always give the, whatever client you're working with exactly what they're asking for. But I think you always have the leeway to provide more versions. You know, they can always not listen to it if they don't want to. And they just want to say, no, this is what I want. I'm going to go with that. But I think if you don't agree, you can always say, here's what you wanted. Here's six other versions of things that I thought, you know, may be cool too. And, you know, maybe you can pick and choose a little bit from each and go from there. But usually creative conflicts I find in, in this type of work are best served by giving them exactly what they asked for and then showing them maybe all the things that they didn't. Tim, when you run into a conflict, how do you approach it? Well, it depends on the director because some directors, they don't want to play games. They just want to hear what you think and uh, they'll give you their answer. But there's a lot of directors that... If you want to get something to work a certain way, you have to kind of play ball with them and massage some egos and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I take it on a case-by-case -case basis. The thing that was mentioned earlier about giving options is one way that I like to tackle things. If, if you're in a early enough in the process where options can be uh, sorted out. But that's a good way to go about it where you say, you know, you wanted this to sound like the Transformers, but I don't think that this sounds like the Transformers because it's an episode of uh, Prairie Home Companion or something like that, you know. <laughs> Sometimes you, you just get notes. Another thing that happened to me recently that actually I never even assumed could happen, I got notes back from a director and what I had given him did not have the opening credits on it. And then he saw a version of the picture where they had stitched the opening credits on it. So all of his time code notes were now off by like a minute and a half. But I didn't know that. So he's got notes saying, change this part at, you know, two minutes and 30 seconds, make it cuter. And I'm like, that's a prison scene. You can't make it cute. Like, what's going on? And it took me forever to figure out what the hell, like none of his notes made any sense with the time code. The first four were completely confusing. I was like, okay, something's going on here. And we figured it out. But yeah, that's something you got to make sure everyone's working with the same picture because uh, that can obviously lead to massive confusion. I also agree that you should give options if you feel strongly that the that the director's asking for something that that isn't appropriate or that or that could be improved upon, I should say. I will very rarely if ever give more than one option. If I feel strongly enough to give an option, then I'll have a very specific feeling about about how it should be. And I'll usually just give exactly what they asked for and exactly what I think is right without giving a lot more. Because I do think you have to respect your director's time. And, and if you send your director six or seven options, you're more likely to get ignored than if you send them one. It's also going to breed confusion. Yeah, depending on who you're working with, you have to tailor it too, but I'm, I'm all about options. Yeah, it depends on the project for me and the type of media, really. In the commercial spot world, my experience has always been the more options you have, the better. And I've delivered... 10, 20 options for one 30 second spot, you know, to start. And those, those options go away very quickly and you narrow them down very quickly for a feature film or something, obviously just the function of time. You can't really do that, you know? And it's also, if you are doing an in-person work session versus posting or something like that, you know, you have a lot more leeway when you have someone in the room with you to say, okay, here's what you're looking for, but give me like five, 10 minutes and let me put together a couple of other things that we can listen to and see if you like those as well. That's a little more difficult when you're doing just postings and working remotely. Then the, the onus is on them to kind of take time out of their day and sit there and listen or watch however many options you posted. So 
whatever you post, you have to feel strongly that those are the right things. You can't just post something that you don't agree with because what's the point in that? If you don't believe that what they're asking for is the right thing and you're going to provide options to the contrary, then whatever options you provide, you need to be able to justify those and you need to be able to stand behind anyone that they pick because otherwise I don't think you're really doing your job, to be honest. And yeah, for sure, Tim, then I think you're absolutely breeding confusion because who knows which one is right. <laughs> and Daniel, you said you do it. You do like seeing options coming from Dustin. When you get options and you didn't ask for them, how do you how do you approach it generally? I'll obviously listen to the one that we were kind of building off of as a go-to. A big thing for me is hearing it in context of a, of a project because it's one thing to hear a three-second snippet, but it's nice to hear a 30-second snippet, even if all I'm focusing on is those three seconds. And then just kind of hearing how it relates to the tone of the piece as a whole and figuring out from there what works and what doesn't, what's too loud, what's too quiet. I think that one of the things I like about Dustin's work a lot is that it is always less is more and very subtle. And a lot of times that if there are like two or three options presented in front of us, we'll typically know when we hear it which one works and which one doesn't. I don't think I've ever been in a situation with him on a project that it's hit a point where it was argumentative or one of us was just giving in for the other one. It's usually, like we said, since we are on the same page with a lot of stuff across the board, once we do hear them presented as a whole, the sample will answer itself. Whatever he presents will basically tell us when we hear it, like, hey, this is the noise you want. And it, it just kind of makes sense. And that's why I love sound so much because it tends to be something that just kind of clicks when you hear the right version. Right on. Daniel, you're an editor too, is that correct? Yes. So when, when you're editing a film, do you keep sound in mind? And how do you approach your picture edit with regards to facilitating the sound? Um, well, depending, again, it's kind of project to project. And I edit a lot of my own stuff. Not all of it, but I'd say a majority of it right now. I, I try and do editorial as well. And a lot of it is just because of time and budget restraints. But to me, like I said, when I start post-production, I'm just as excited as, what, as when I'm starting production because that's when you get to work with sound and graphics and just kind of the images that are in my mind are now coming to life in front of me. And with sound, I always, on rough works and progress and everything, I'll always do my best to provide an audio edit as well, even if it's just my makeshift version. I have a limited sound library and I'll often like hit Dustin up early on in a project and say, do you have this sound just that I could drop in as a reference? So when I tend to give a cut, a lot of times I'll have my own audio edit included just for a reference point, but some people don't like that. I've also just been asked, like, can you just give it to me with no sound and let me do my thing? So it depends on who I'm working with and what the project is, but I do like sound so much that I always try, if for nothing else, just for the pure enjoyment of it, to give an audio pass as well on my own. Do you find when you're doing your audio pass that it affects your edit? It affects the timing of your cuts? Sometimes it does, and I think it's always for the better when that's the case, because I think that once things start coming to life sonically, that'll tell you how much time you should or shouldn't give something. And it's just so fun. Like, I can experiment with sound on something, and like we were talking about different versions and stuff, I'll give myself versions of stuff just for the entertainment value of it, because I can get so into the sound aspect of things. And then when I give it to a professional who actually knows what he's doing, then it's much more exciting. One of the one of the people that I work with, Jerry Miranda over at the Stars, he's the video editor and video shooter. 
He's also a musician. And one of the things that he does in his edits better than just about anyone else that I work with is he gives certain events time to happen. So what he'll do is there'll be, a, you know, we'll do the big video open and there'll be this big, massive event. And he has the courage to cut to that and just sit and just hang on it for what in his mind feels like forever because it'll be like five or six seconds of just hanging on one little thing. But it's because he knows in his experience working with me that I can fill that whole thing up for that whole period of time. And when you give big, big elements time to sit and resonate, that really pays off. And he's, he's better at that than just about anyone else that I've ever worked with. So that's for the in the, the Dallas Stars hockey team, the in-game entertainment, like the on the Jumbotron stuff? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, that's, you know, he and I basically, for every open video, there's about two moments where we'll just, just build something up and just blast it and just blow it out for, you know, forever. And there won't be anything else happening. It'll just be, and it'll just sit. And we'll just sit on it and sit on it and sit on it and then come back. Or he'll cut to a slow-mo shot. Like, it feels uncomfortably long to him with no sound in it because when you're just looking at the pictures it doesn't feel right to be hanging on it because your instinct is to move to the next thing and he's developed a real ability to fight against his instinct and to trust what's going to happen later in the process does he ever adjust his edit after the first sound pass you've given him because he realizes or you guys may have had a discussion that hey this sound might work a little bit better if you added or subtracted a few frames here or yeah. Yeah. With us, it's less frames and more seconds. I mean, he'll push something back three seconds when he hears what I ended up doing in one spot. He'll be like, oh, I need to let that sit, <laughs> you know? See, that's cool. And I find that that's, that's pretty rare for editors. A lot of times you're at the mercy of the edit, you know, and the, that edit is never going to change. So you better make your sound work. And that's a, one of the reasons why I love working with Daniel, because he's very open to the idea of adjusting his picture to fit what I'm doing which is great. And that, that to me is true collaboration. Collaboration shouldn't be a one-way street. You know, you should, should be a dialogue. Daniel, do you ever adjust your picture edit based on, on something you got back from Dustin? Yeah, I think I have a couple times. I know for sure in the intros of the For No One stuff. Yeah, we've, we've done that for sure. Where And in, in with my stuff, a lot of times my first edit will be, if it's like a three-minute finished product, the first edit will always be about 25 minutes because I like to stand things for an abnormally long, like one of my, <laughs> a director that I like a lot, um, this Hungarian director called Belatar, like he has a movie called Satan Tango that's seven hours long. Um, he, the first shot in a lot of his films will be like a nine minute shot and stuff like that I'm way, way into. And that's why I love, like you were saying, going, and I mean, this is extremely overboard, but going overboard with stuff to, and relying on sound to help fill some of those would feel like holes at the time. And then it always gets chopped down, of course, but like the first draft of everything I do is always, always substantially longer than I know the finished cut will be. And obviously 20 minutes is an exaggeration, but it, it is oftentimes like 30 seconds to a minute longer right off the bat, just because I want stuff to breathe as much as possible and to allow a sound designer to have the freedom to experiment with stuff like that. And then we'll go back and forth on it and see what works and what doesn't. Yeah. I mean, I feel like for a sound decision to affect the video edit, it's got to hit, a, it's got to meet a pretty high bar. Yeah. Because that, you know, if I do something and it, and it affects the video edit, then that's affecting me also. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's really, it's really got to meet a high bar. But if they do meet the, those high bars, I think it, it's to the editor's credit to, to roll with it and to actually affect the picture in the cut. 
Yeah, and sometimes it doesn't even pass the conversation stage, but I like just sitting down with someone who's going to work on something and going through and edit and see how they feel, what ideas they have, and if they would like a little room somewhere, if we have the time and the luxury to do that, to experiment with it a little bit first and see how it feels. If you have a short film, hypothetically we're talking about a short film here, and it's the first time you're looking at it with your sound guy. How do you guys approach spotting sessions? Do you do it together? Do you do it independently? Do you stop and start or you just watch it down once and write notes? How do you guys approach your spotting sessions on the front end? We sit down together and it's usually, at least with Daniel and I, it's, it's, it's a conversation. And it's very rarely, at least the initial conversation is very rarely time code specific. I think to your point, Renee, that it's really about what kind of emotions and what do we want these scenes or the piece as a whole to feel like, you know, what do we want the audience to get from this in kind of very broad strokes. And then from there, then we'll start talking about specific scenes and going through it piece by piece. And it's always together. We do, we do it as a, as a team. With Daniel and I, it's, it's more of a brainstorming session than necessarily your typical spotting where it's like, okay, at this time code, I need a footstep. At that time code, I need a footstep. I think because Daniel and I know each other so well at this point, it doesn't have to be that way. I know that there's going to be a footstep there. He knows there's going to be a footstep there. So we can talk about the bigger sometimes things. Sometimes even the small things then, like to us, if it's unsaid that obviously there's going to be footsteps here, we can talk about the room tone for 20 minutes and like just get into something like that and go kind of on a shot by shot, scene by scene basis with just like minuscule stuff because a lot of the other stuff we know from experience that we're on the same page with it too. Yeah, the level of trust that we've established between each other is, is really great. I enjoy it. It's one of the best parts about working with Daniel. And so the spotting sessions are pretty easy and they do tend to be more brainstorming sessions. What can we do here? How can we make this scene work? How can we get that emotion out of the actors or out of this action, whatever it is? I do a lot of work on episodic animation, so you'll start a series and there's, you know, 26 episodes, 52 episodes, and the first couple episodes you're getting, like, novels of notes before, like, during the spotting session, and then when you're at, like, episode 14 or 15, you're getting, like, four different things, like, oh, at this note, at this point, there's something happening off screen, just, like, little things that you might not know watching, but so it's, it's good to build that rapport, build the trust, but it does take time. And it's great that you guys have built it, but it's definitely something that you have to put the effort into to begin with when you start working with a new person. Yeah, I think it was helpful that Daniel and I had a lot of conversations about what we liked, what we didn't like, not just in terms of sound, but in terms of film, in terms of music, in terms of art, all this kind of stuff, way before we ever worked on a project together. And so we did have kind of a knowledge of each other on a personal level before we actually started kind of a professional relationship which makes the professional relationship a lot easier for us. And it allows references to be a bit more abstract too. Like you were talking about not necessarily liking um, to have references all the time, Renee. And a lot of times with Destin and I, a reference might not be like, listen to this sound in this movie. That's what I'm talking. It'll be like, this art exhibit makes you feel like this. And I want to convey that sonically. How can we do that in this scene? And Dustin will be like, I'm on it and deliver something later. That's like, cool. I don't know how you figure that out because it didn't make a lot of sense. But we're on the same page with, with stuff across so many different media that we can drop references that aren't necessarily a sound reference. It's more of a tone or a feeling or something more abstract than that sometimes. Yeah, that's awesome. References that are, that are uh, in different media, I think, are really cool. I think it's fun sometimes to have conversations that 
take you outside of the the project, so to speak. So, you know, you may be working on a film, but the references might be like from art or an installation you saw and maybe completely unrelated to the project, but they do help give you a kind of a sense of, of the feeling and, and the tone of the piece. And to Tim's point, it really helps establish that rapport to know that we don't just agree or we're not just working on this project, but we're actually, we're, we kind of creatively connect in the bigger picture. And that's nice. I think then you start to know each other on a personal level. All those notes and all the feedback and all the iterations that you guys will go through, it, they're that much easier and it's that much easier to digest as a, as a practitioner, as a sound designer, or engineer, whatever. I'd say, uh, you know, also just as sound guys, even if you are working with someone that you haven't developed a relationship with, you, you are getting tons of references of that person's aesthetic just by looking at the work that they handed you. If you look at the the pictures that they put together and the timing of the cut and the style of the cut and the style of the shots, you already have tons and tons of information about the person that you're working with just by what's in front of you. And so it's important to to be very conscious of that and to take advantage of it with regards to what you're doing as a sound guy. Yeah, you have to be very aware of the person that you're working with in every sense. You know, what are they wearing? Like, what kind of clothes do they wear? That's That can dictate a lot about what their aesthetic is. You know, what kind of things are they into? What kind of music were they listening to when they walked into your studio? All that kind Which of stuff. Which cell phone do they have? Yeah, what kind of yeah. phone do they have? I mean, all this kind of stuff. It's, 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 it sounds silly, but it is important when you're trying to put together a picture in your mind of the person that you're trying to please. I think that that's the more information you have that can kind of put that puzzle together, the closer you're going to be to really understanding that person and really understanding why those notes are the notes that they gave you. You know, I know, I know Daniel pretty well on a personal level now, and when he gives me notes, I know why he gave me those notes. So it, it never is an argumentative thing because I know what he's thinking, and that's really easy. You know, I, I had an interesting uh, experience with notes recently where, with Jerry, with the, with the latest Stars Open, where there was a slow-mo shot, and there was a puck flipping through the air, and so I cut all the sound out, nothing else except for the little of the puck flipping through the air. And I kept it pretty chilled out and level. I kept it pretty low. And he was like, no, man, it's got to be louder. It's got to be louder. I was like, no, trust me. It needs to be chilled out. I want everyone to lean forward in their seats, you know, in the arena when that puck, when everything slows down and stops and all, you, all you're focusing on is that puck flipping. I want everyone to lean forward so I don't want to push it too hard. And then, you know, we, we put it all together and he trusted me and we, and we rolled with it and, and it went like that opening night. And the next day I was like, dude, you're right. I'm turning it up. <laughs> so <laughs> he was totally right. And I turned it up and it was, and it's been up louder ever since, you know, but it was still my decision to strip everything else out. But he was right with regards to um, the apparent level on that way more than I was. Tonight is day one of a new Texas tradition. We, we brought the team here because we heard and know that Texas fans are the best sports fans in the entire world. And now, we of the Dallas Stars, all of you and all of us, have a message for the other teams in the NHL. Don't mess with Texas.
good that's that's collaboration right guys both you had an idea he had an idea and you worked towards a eventual solution and it was a conversation neither one of you prescribed what that solution was going to be but you you iterated on the the project and finally got there i think that's what collaboration is about yeah and it, and it requires open-mindedness on both sides and you can't be afraid of doing the wrong thing yeah absolutely and it requires the director to be able to hear something that he or she was not expecting and appreciate it as good or bad and to be able to evaluate it because it's tough when you're when you're a director or when you're a producer and you've had this baby and you've been developing it for weeks and months and years and you know it inside and out and you hand it to somebody near the end of the process and they and they're coming at it with fresh eyes but they're but they're coming at it from a totally different angle and they hand you something you didn't expect it's a it's a difficult human thing to be able to put aside your set aside your expectations and evaluate what was just handed to you cleanly and I feel like the directors that are the best able to do that end up with the best output at the end. I agree. Absolutely. Oh, the psychology of what we do. So it's fun. It's hard. <laughs> cool. Well, hey, Daniel, thank you very much for jumping on and give us your insight. We want to do more of talking to non-audio people and talking more about the collaborative process and talking about how the non-audio people talk to the audio people and how the audio people need to step in your shoes and understand what it is that people like you are doing in order to do our job better for people like you. So thank you again for coming on. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. So we were thinking about talking about the recent GDC event, but since the wonderful Game Audio podcast did such a wonderful job of covering it, we're just going to direct you over there and you can get those episodes at their website, www.gameaudiopodcast.com. We strongly recommend you download all of their episodes or subscribe to their podcast. They do just a wonderful, wonderful job. I really love the way that they approach GDC just by bringing the recorders out to what is the most important part of a lot of those conferences, which is the, uh, the bars and restaurants before and after, and having those conversations there and, and sharing those with the rest of us that weren't able to be there. I think the way that they did that was really great. And I think it it showed a lot of courage, I guess, to approach it as minimally as they did, and I think it worked out great for him. Go check it out. And if you want to see what the inside of Dallas Audio Post looks like, you can go check out the cover of Mix Magazine in April. Oh, yeah. Congratulations, Renee. Definitely. Congrats. It's a beautiful room. Beautiful rooms you have there. Big milestone for us. That was pretty cool. A cool interview on the inside, too. They were, they were very good to us. Yeah, you know, you spend your whole career reading that thing, and, and to, to make the cover, is, is, it's a little surreal. Yeah, it's pretty monumental. Congrats. Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to Adele Young for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. You can follow the show at the Tonebenders and go to tonebenders.net to leave a comment. Also check us out on facebook.com slash tonebenderspodcast and on iTunes if you want to leave us a rating. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Turnbenders. Find us online at turnbenders.net, where you can see our archives and leave a comment or a tip. If you listen on iTunes, please write us a review while you're there. Follow us on Twitter at the Turnbenders, or email us at dc, timothy, or renee at turnbenders.net. <laughs> <laughs>